Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. On a previous episode, we talked about class reductionism, and now we're going to talk about how that relates to uh, game theory and the current presidential cycle and the ongoing sort of protesting around the Black Lives Matter movement. So Joe Biden is set to allegedly announce his vice presidential pick uh, in what will be the first week of August. So before we get started, any big, bold predictions? Um, everybody thinks it's going to be Kamala. I don't think how Cop Mala, and you see we played a little game there, COP Mala, is going to be able to you know give him what he needs, which would be a person of color, and this is identity politics at its greatest, um, and someone who's going to you know be kind to the Black Lives Matter, or at least you know decrease I don't know police presence and brutality. So I'm gonna to have to say I don't know. I, I was thinking he was gonna pick someone like. Beto in Texas, but I don't want to say that. He's going to pick a woman of color, probably. Well, he's already said he's picking a female. I, I guess it won't be Beto, then. So I don't think he knows Kamala at all. Like, they don't have any, like, working history. She kind of went at him during one of the earlier debates. How much of that is theater? Who knows? Um, his campaign was kind of on life support, though, after the debate, because she did so well, but then she also dropped out, like, four minutes later. Yep, she had to. Uh... I don't know how you run such an incompetent campaign, but again, maybe Beto could, you know, be a strong, strong example of uh, how to do such a thing. Um, I think Susan Rice, he's worked with Susan Rice before as vice president because she was the uh, secretary of state in kind of the first-ish term of Obama's presidency. That's true. And I think as a VP, you don't really just want to pick somebody that'll, like, take up a lane on the ticket that offers some demographic point or something, because you're going to have to, like, interact with this person. Yep. Um, so okay. I'm going with Susan Rice. You can, How about anybody that's less matured out? So we know that the club is done. Uh, we think yep. that there's going to be nobody at the at the federal level probably going to go. Anybody at the uh, mayor level or lower at, at, or around anywhere? I, I don't think there's any governors. I mean, is he really going to go after Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan? I mean, is he going to go after – what's the mayor of Atlanta? I forgot I forgot the, her name. Um, Keisha Lance Bottoms or something. Um, yeah. I mean, she's kind of losing the limelight because the protests aren't really being covered. Is Portland anybody out in Portland? I don't know. I, I think a lot, like, at, at this point, I think everybody that's kind of auditioning has kind of done their media cycle, too. Um, yeah. I don't know of anybody in Portland. But at the same time, like, who in Portland has, like, done anything? So, so that's a good good way to get right into this Black Lives Matter discussion. Um, but, okay, the final prediction. I'm going to say that um, I'm, he's going to either stick his neck out. I like the Susan Rice thing. He's going to tr- probably either try to grab a p- person of color female that's going to either be at the federal level that we just saw, who's going to grab somebody from either the Deep South or I don't want to say California that's already locked up. I'm going to, I'm going to go he's going to pick a, uh, for electoralism, somebody from South or Florida, but I don't know who, so I, I apologize for that. So your, your, uh, your prediction is unsubstantiated by any reasonable 
involvement and even caring about who he chooses. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Sorry, I don't <laughs> care. Um, at all about Biden's campaign. I mean, the the take a, a person who should be rocking in a chair somewhere eating applesauce and hiding from the from people for what I don't know nine months and, and hope he's got to survive for under a hundred days. It's 100 days today, wasn't there? Or was it yesterday? I thought, I don't know, yesterday I or the day before. His tweet, and I was like, oh, he's counting down the days where he can make the vice president president do his job. I mean, cause <laughs> that's ar- arguably his only job is to get the Dems to win so that when he finally gets, I don't know, what's that What's that Constitution Amendment? 15? The 25th. 25th. Everybody can just collectively vote him out. Collect this, say, get the hell out of here, you old man, and then... Let the vice president come in. I mean, that's all his job really is, is to, is to open the laneway for them. Because who else has name rec? I mean, the Democratic Party has done such a great job being corporate Democrats and being neoliberal that that they've hidden themselves from any type of real leadership, they've hidden themselves from anything in the media. They basically ran as design. Nobody knows who any other Democrat is, and that's good for, I guess, neoliberalism. There's no real leader. So I'm going to go with Susan Rice. Okay. Um, I think... I think somebody like Elizabeth Warren is absolutely not going to be selected. I think you could see like Stacey Abrams from Georgia or Keisha Lance Bottoms from Georgia. Yeah, I think those would be absolutely terrible picks I think from an electoralism like point of view, but they could happen. There's been discussion, of, I think, about Val Demings, who Ugh. who was like a House rep from Virginia or something. Yeah, Honestly, I have no idea. I, it, it's all just identity politics. And if you're going to just, like, choose a, you know, token black female, I don't know that it matters. That's my concern, too. I mean, if you're already looking at 90%, I mean, election or voting rate for the Democratic Party amongst the, the, the black demographic, and, and we're talking real here. We're not talking, like, to try to be PC and high stuff. I mean, identity politics runs deep within campaigns. and You'd be shocked if you knew how they talked about human cattle. I mean... People get into the polls as a number. It has nothing to do with, with who you really are. It's just how do they exploit you to get you out of there. And so if you're already looking at 85 to 90% you know, black vote going to the Democratic Party, why, why pick up women of color? If you need to lock up the ever-eroding uh, white working-class vote uh, and the uh, moderate white working-class female vote, which in the past had voted for Democrats, then you have to go with the female. And if you need to secure yourself a swing state like Ohio, Wisconsin uh, or Michigan, then you're going to ha- try to grab somebody from the Midwest. And so maybe I change my vote. Maybe he will go Gretchen Whitmer. I don't know. I think Gretchen Whitmer, the current governor of Michigan, is a kind of on paper should be the choice. Yeah. Because she's generally well liked in a swing state. I don't really think much is gained by choosing Kamala in California because you already have it locked no. down. Like if, if you want to look at it from like putting the electoral piece together. Um, a California politician doesn't do anything. A Georgia politician doesn't do anything because you're not going to win Georgia. Not win Georgia. Um, nope. I don't know where Susan Rice, you know, is from. She's from D.C. She's a it doesn't matter. Preacher. It, yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Or he could do something totally stupid and choose some random person that nobody's ever heard heard of, like Tim Kaine. We didn't even talk about the potential to choose Hillary. He would he would lose for sure. Put the it's her turn sign up again. I mean, I would love to to be able to knock the dust off my old yard signs and 
Oh wait, probably doesn't have those. Yeah, with I'm with her. What a great identity politics. Too bad that the white working class female does not identify with a neoliberal. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what we were talking about last time, which is class reductionism, class reductionology, which is the idea that every time a leftist talks out in public, they want to talk about class consciousness, and they want to talk about you know material conditions, and they want to bring up theory that's 805 million years old that is only really theory because it describes where we are within capitalism and where we want to be within uh, maybe a communist or socialist state, but doesn't actually talk about any of the change that's required to get there, right? And so what, what ends up happening is we get all this momentum, we start moving forward, and then we end up taking all these, I don't know, consents, or I don't want to call them, like we just middle-of-the-road ground nonsense. And so one of them is we the fact that we compromise. That's what we're looking for, that was C, yeah, it's getting late, I'm sorry, it's, it's like 11 a.m., just, just tend to go to work. 11 a.m. is so late. <laughs> yeah. Um, the idea that like the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, is basically being co-opted by individuals who don't want to actually see the change that needs to be done. So what are we going to do with all this energy on the streets? Because we don't have a coherent left or when the coherent left talks, it's just like nonsense words coming out of the mouth that doesn't inspire anybody besides, you it's know. It's too academic. It's too academic. And, and it is the academic left. And, and that's truly what it is because there is no material conditions that prescribe to have leftists on the streets actually making movements. Because every time, and this is my personal opinion, these protests happen and there's no strong left leadership. We let all the anarcho kiddies out and they like to smash windows and talk about how we should kumara or whatever that word is and, and make a bunch of like small villages that go out and be a libertarian or something nuts, nothing nothing happens. You know, happen with Occupy Wall Street, when which everybody's gonna be, you know, collective to get collective together without anybody actually pointing the direction to go. And it's cool. so we'll go back to this. So we end up with this idea that there's no collective voice, there's nobody fighting for anything real. I mean they they want change. And what happens? The leaderships go and they pass some bullshit bill. So in Minnesota, what happened? They passed the police reform bill. And what, what were the changes? Remember what those changes are? Uh, so the largest kind of concentration of legislative reform, uh, and this is a direct quote from Minnesota media, was the legislation bans chokeholds and fear-based or warrior-style training, which critics say promotes excessive force. It imposes a duty to intercede on officers who see a colleague using excessive force and changes rules on the use of force to stress the sanctity of life. So all of this is good, but I'm really not seeing how this prevents cops from doing all the illegal racist shit that they've been doing, uh, like shooting or choking black people to death uh, with no repercussions. Because after all, killing somebody has always been illegal. Right, but when you have what's it, qualified immunity, is that what it's called? That's that immunity we're yep, for. Yep, for coppers. Yep. Yep. So, so when you act from the state and the state does violence against you because you have immunity from your actions because you're acting from the state, you can't get prosecuted from it. So nobody actually got rid of the immunity piece. And Biden's not going to get rid of the immunity piece. Colo I think Colorado did, right? That's the only state that, that voted. Yeah. I mean, so we're, we're talking about the one piece of legislation that we wanted, which was getting rid of the immunity is not, not on anybody's minds because they're focusing primarily on the action that happened that ended their life. 
and that action was being too stressful on the human body, excessive force, which isn't the actual issue. The, the issue is that the, in, that the police are allowed to be violent without any repercussions. And so this piece of legislation is just sort of a theater. It just waves her hand saying, look, we're going to end this. But then a police officer can say, I was scared for my life and then put you in a chokehold to kill you. And be like, well, I was afraid instead of it being that there's no immunity. So they can't actually kill you without being prosecuted. Because it's, it's a couple of things that, that's going on here. One, the prosecutor can't even bring charges against the officers. And they're allowed to do internal investigations. That's one. And two, when they do bring charges against them, it's all watered down because they did everything within the state and they had to prove that they did something And their illegal. training said this and that and that and this. And if it was in their training, then it was fine. Yeah, because well, who's held accountable it. for having shitty training? Yeah, who goes to jail because the training said they cracked someone's head with a brick? Nobody. Not the mayor, not the not the commissioner, or whatever they have, police chief, whatever whatever it is. Not Gotham City, I guess. It's um, <laughs> it, it's not the Senate or it's not the House. It's not whoever approved it, right? Did the Batman approve it? Yeah, the Batman say, go ahead and hit him with the cane. Um, so you take people who have spent their entire time being trained with these warrior style training. Everybody has a knife. Everybody has a bomb on them. And you're going to say that now they have to be, you know, I don't know, the sanctity of life is important. That's not how that works. You, someone with 12 years of experience always trained that they have to pull a gun and shoot somebody is not going to turn around and go, you know what, now I'm going to try to de-escalate. That's not how that works. Getting rid of qualified or qualified, I mean, whatever the hell that word is, means that they have to think twice about pulling a gun because now there's actually going to be a trial. And that's the important part is dragging everybody through the shitter and going through the ringer and holding them accountable will be the only thing that changes it. And actually changing their job title. Because who needs a cop? I mean, come on. What the hell? I mean, what happens in an accident? They show up and actually put the fire out, or they go and help anybody? No, they sit and write the accident report. Anybody can do that. Can no, that's the fire department. Oh, yeah, fire department puts up the fire, and the EMS saves you with lies, and the cop sits there and does what? Directs traffic, and what else do they do? Write the, write the report? Get An intern could do that. Anybody with a truck with light on top of it can stop traffic and, and tell them to go to the side. What else do they do? They sit and wait for you to speed by them. That doesn't help anybody besides them hit their quota so they get promoted. And, and they call the police, someone's breaking in your house. Chances are they're going to be like out of your house by the time the police get there. Right? Or they're yeah, it's reactive. It's not preventative. Yeah, they're going to shoot you in the head within the three minutes or 10, 12, 15 minutes it takes for the cop to get there. So it's not like they're going to save your life. Right, being raped on the side of the road, they're not going to stop the rape. You're going to have to go get a rape kit that's going to go in a backlog somewhere. It's going to take six years to get the prosecution. So it's not like the police are there to be heroes and save you. And every Supreme Court ruling for them says they're not required to save, to, to risk their lives to save you. So again, they're not heroes. The idea of a police officer like in the Western is so insane to me. And this is what we get: we get violent officers who are trained to be violent, who are only drawn to the profession because they can't be violent, who are allowed to do illegal things because no one's going to prosecute them, and they're allowed to do illegal things because no one's going to hold them accountable. So you're telling me that drawing or painting Black Lives Matter in a street isn't going to actually change anything? Exactly right. The the, the <laughs> graffiti will not change your mind. It takes direct action to get there. And this is actually what's great in Portland right now, the direct action. I mean, it's good that the mayor got, I don't know, Pepper spray, tear, or gas. Maze, tear gas, but tear I mean, gas theater, tear gas theater. But the the fucking mayor is a class trader anyway. So what's the matter? I mean, it yeah, he's a, not beloved by the the people. He he's only out there for a press call. It's like the time Jill Stein spray painted like a 
a dick pic or something <laughs> on a bulldozer, right? I mean, it didn't like it didn't help anybody at all. It, it actually makes it worse because now it, you take the anger that should be directed at the Portland mayor. He's co-opted it, saying, I'm one of you, but he's not. He's just there to reduce the violence. It's so absurd because now they're going to charge the federal government $46,000 a day. Is that what it is? For the fence? For putting up, a, for putting up an illegal fence. An illegal fence. $46,000 a day. Who cares? Wow, cool. Who gives a shit? Like, the federal government's either going to pay it <laughs> or they're going to drag it through litigation and say, we have immunity because we're the federal government. It's a federal we, building or we... And it's a federal building. Property and, or... and because Portland decided not to, you know, just to do their thing, because Portland wasn't protecting the federal building, we had to come in and protect ourselves. I mean, come on. It doesn't make any sense. So we see the same thing in Portland. So Portland legal fence, and why is this important? It's because Trump has been dispatching federal troops, um, and he's doing it to alter the narrative, Right. To raise the specter yep. of authoritarianism and fascism, um, protesting will still persist. You're going to get all the protesters come come out that have never protested a day in their life because they're like, oh my God, fascism, authoritarianism. I've never seen this before, even though it's been going on for you know, at least Trump's entire term. And uh, the protesting will persist. Trump will send the troops out. He'll kind of anger the base in Portland, Chicago, some of these lefter-ish Cities that have kind of demonstrated a history of being vocal protesting-wise. Seattle's yep. in that mix. Um, I don't think politically he'll send anything to Minnesota just because um, Minnesota sort of demonstrated that they're completely willing to not fuck around and will burn, burn a post office. <laughs> That's important. That's direct action, baby. I mean, I, I don't I don't think there's any anything to gain by Trump sending troops back to Minneapolis. Uh and so he'll kind of ramp up the specter of federal troops. People get all bothered by it. And then in, you know, two or three weeks when the media cycle ends, he can withdraw the troops and you'll get some segment of the population that'll stop protesting and the protests will kind of wither away into nothing. And then everybody will kind of look around and be like, what happened to Black Lives Matter? Yeah, it, it's going to happen because um, there's no centralized planning here. And then the left side, and and it's sort of a, a shame that we're going to have all this energy wasted, and nothing's going to come from it because it's a waiting game. Neoliberalism is a waiting game. They can wait everybody out. We're not. We don't have a bench full of people who are ready to go to the next level. You know, the state level. There's no recalls in order. There's nothing ready to go here. You know, and we're, we're going to put all of our eggs in the basket of Biden, who's already come out and said he's not going to get rid of qualified immunity. He's not going to defund the police. He's not going to do any changes because he's been the same alleged rapist and alleged racist for no, definite entire, racist. Definite racist, I apologize. Alleged rapist. It's allegedly a uh, rapist. Um for the last what, forty years? I don't even know what guy I have no idea how long he's in office for doing the same exact thing he's been doing. I mean his last idea came out of the seventies, so that that's what, fifty years of, of insanity of just doing the same fucking thing over and over again, sorry I swore. He, he's not going to change. He's not. He's not a proponent of change. He hasn't spent his entire career changing things. He spent his entire career like blocking everything that's coming through that it was change. I mean, he says he stopped Ebola, but he the ta- leading a task force on stopping he Ebola. He stopped Ebola. Yeah, that's what he's coming out. Just I, like he I, cured I, cancer. Yeah, I invented the internet, says Al Gore. You got the task force that helped with Ebola. That's that's doesn't make any sense because. 
come on, you just gave funding. You stopped the, you did the Wall Street bailouts and whatever the hell happened. You saved Detroit. You didn't save Detroit. Detroit went bankrupt. I mean, come on. There was no saving anything there. <laughs> you didn't retool the automotive. He's a, this is a pure liar. He's not going to come out and be your friend. He's not helping the worker. Every legislation that he's passed, he hasn't, he hasn't done things like union cards yet. He hasn't pushed that, which is the idea that anybody can just sign the name on a card and once they get to 51%, they form a union. It doesn't require a vote. It's, it's a really important tool potentially for unions, even though it's a sort of a neoliberal construct, which, which means you're still playing within the bounds of, uh, you know, the, the union laws within, you know, capitalism, but it's still, it's a very important construct. He's not fighting for that. Biden arguably in some way, shape, or form contributed to sort of the authoritarian state that Trump is able to invoke in Portland. And uh, it, it's kind of like, who could have foreseen that this would happen? But then Trump is sort of the logical conclusion of all of this. And he's sort of politically incompetent enough to like carry out all of these kind of logical conclusion activities. And I think the thing in Portland is, is important because uh, he's abusing the Department of Homeland Security's, you know, federal police or whatever. And it just kind of raises this question of like, well, why do we have the Department of Homeland Security? Well, it's always been supported before, but it's like, well, the entire government sector is, what, like 19, 18 years old because Bush created it after 9-11. And there was plenty of opposition to DHS being a thing. And there continues to be so. And so this, this idea, this narrative that, like, oh, well, maybe DHS can be abused. Like, no, in, in 2001, 2002, it was like we're literally creating, like, a militarized enforcement wing in the federal government. And people opposed it for that reason, and that is the literal reason that people are opposing it now. Yeah, let's just remember that when the roll call vote was done to pass the bill for DHS, who voted yay on this? Biden. So let's 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 not forget that he voted for DHS. And every single thing along the way, Biden has voted for a police state the entire way. And just so the conservatives know if you want to talk to your weirdo friends, one of the largest transfers of power was ever done was when the House and Senate voted under Bush to transfer the power of the Treasury to the executive branch to let them handle the bailout. The second thing was that the largest expansion of the federal workforce beyond that of the Great Depression was when Bush was able to start hiring federal troops. And that's what it was. Every year they keep hiring more and more federal troops and it's all for law enforcement. So I guess if you're a bootlegging-looking chud, you love the idea of law and order, this is great for you. This is a small, the small government that you want is the large government that Bush created. But everything along the way, the basically, I, I think one of the one of the scariest things that happened under Obama was that his charm disarmed a bunch of the left and allowed for a lot of these authoritarian things to be pushed through that you're not even really aware about, you know, aware of, right? So. The ability to deploy federal troops and things like that and cause national, you know, disasters and, and things. I mean, they they kept growing under the Obama years, just like they did under the Bush years. And this is not something that was willy nilly. This has been a calculated decision on the executive branch to keep gaining power year over year. And what happens when you get an authoritarian in power that knows how to use his power the right way or the wrong way? But you get or. I mean, our, we can we can question. I mean, it's the wrong way for us in the authoritarian way, but it, for him, he's using the power in the correct way. If you want to hold power, you basically deploy federal troops to every large democratic city, 
if you disrupt the ability to vote because you're going to cause some sort of martial law there. And that's just the way it's going to be. And we're seeing it already starting to play out. He's not going to deploy troops to, to Texas unless it's Houston. Right. Or or the capital. Right. He's not gonna he's not gonna deploy troops to whatever well, the capital of Texas is. <laughs> I mean, it's really strange in that city. As Trump continues to abuse these authoritarian kind of principles that both Bush and Obama sort of put forth, but didn't necessarily abuse themselves. Um, at some point, kind of individual cities or municipalities or whatever, like, have some obligation or some ability maybe to oppose it. And you're seeing this a little bit in Portland where a lot of the, I'm going to say, like, entities like the ACLU or uh, maybe even some of the legal apparatus as part of Portland, the municipality, are sort of filing lawsuits, kind of rejecting federal troops having certain rights or whatever. Uh, but, but at some point, like the national guard exists as a sort of militia based entity assigned to each state. And this is, this is like long standing kind of federal separation of powers with states rights and all that stuff that dates back to you know, like literally the revolutionary war and, uh, kind of how militias will operate. Now, it wasn't called the National Guard at the time, but it, it's kind of the same general concept of these states, the governors of each state, have basically an army that they can use to enforce the rights of state inhabitants and citizens. So at, at what point is sort of the logical conclusion of will the Oregon National Guard be deployed to protect protesters in Portland from the federal uh, police of DHS? I think the answer is no, but it's sort of an interesting kind of political uh, theory of game theory of like what, what should each state do? How should they react to this? Yeah, they should immediately, I mean, it, okay, let's let's take a step back and ask yourself, does the governor of, you know, Washington, Oregon, or California, or uh, Chicago, Illinois, you mean. or Michigan, or I'm not Chicago. I mean, it really is Chicago right. politics. It's, it's right? the it's governor Chicago of Chicago. Governor of Chicago. It's it's like you know, I'll, you can take a bribe for your senator seat. Um, Rob Bogoyevich. He got pardoned, didn't he? Rest in power. Or commuted? Trump commuted him. Yeah. Of course, he got commuted. Power, power does not beget. Or power begets power, baby. So the question though is that will the governor act? Hell no, the governor not gonna do shit because the governor can't. The governor. If they would do something, would mean that they would disrupt the power struggle and then have to admit to themselves and everybody else that there wasn't. Yeah, there it's a, and not just. It's conceding but, that they failed in their duty to protect kind of citizens in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and they're not going to yield that way. They're going to say that we're having you know daily conference calls and we're working on the best solution. And I've been in contact with so and so, and they're going to reduce the number of violence or whatever. But that's. That's all nonsense. It's all theater. They're just waiting out the protesters so they get tired. I mean, you're going against people who are trained <laughs> to hold out and fight you. I mean, that's the problem with the protester. Yeah, protesting, you need to get it over with within the week or you're going to burn yourselves out. You cannot ask a mother or a father or a school-age kid or even a college student or someone with a job or I mean, anybody with a job, really anybody, to go out night after night. 10 days, 15 days straight to protest. That's just not going to happen. You're not going to have people showing up every single day, 
people are gonna they're gonna take ground on you. This is the way it's gonna be. They're gonna push the fence out. They're gonna bring in heavily armed things. You don't have the time. The time to act would be immediate and to force the governor to act to do something like call the national guard. That's never gonna happen. The second thing the governor could have done is, is just deploy the state troops to protect the, the protesters, but they weren't going to do that because we know the, the cops are not on the side of the protesters because they're designed to only do class protection of the rich and wealthy. They're there to divide the classes. And, and the cops are in some manner also protesting their sort of desire to continue existing. So this isn't just a one-sided protest where the, the protesters are basically saying Black Lives Matter, we should defund the police, whatever their demands are. The police are also there asserting kind of their viewpoint of you should not defund the police because we we are valuable. We enforce law and order. We offer this such and such a thing that is desirable. And in some part, I think there's a weighting of kind of over-militarization of the police don't want to be super militant and create large amounts of violence because then that kind of reinforces what the protesters are saying. So... Even though you're seeing, you know, some opposition, some response by the police, uh, it's not it's not like the 1968 DNC, you know, riots in Chicago where people just got their heads beaten in and were bleeding and ambulances were coming and going. Uh, it it's not like an extremely violent situation that is ongoing on a daily basis. There are. I'm going to say isolated incidents where people get shot in the eye with rubber bullets or something. And yes, that's a way over militarization of the police and they should not be doing this at all. But the protests have been going on for so long that the general populace has sort of been desensitized to like, Oh, they got shot in the eye by a rubber bullet. Like, you know how you don't get shot in the eye by the rubber bullet. You don't go protest. So I don't feel sorry for the protesters. So the cops can continue doing whatever it is they want with this sort of nominal amount of force usage, but it's not, escalating because if the cops escalate it it reflects poorly on their position and their position is cops need to exist you're right they're taking it to the exact level in which media is bad for them right that they're people are used to them shooting tear gas at individuals people are used to shooting rubber bullets and so they're doing everything they can to basically remain quote-unquote law and order but at the same time protect themselves the issue is that there are two classes, we're just talking about classes in general here, that we're fighting right now with the police. There, there is the funding class for those that, that are in power that will fund or defund the police. That's the police must do everything they can to make them happy. At the same time, you have the voting population or the general class, the people who are split, you know, it depends on 50-50, whatever the splitting is, those that want the police defunded, those that don't, that do. And, and that sort of split right there allows the police then to only focus their attention on those that fund them because they don't give a shit because there's no overwhelming force that's going to remove them from power because there's not a consensus that power needs to be removed from them. And you kind of see this with the Minnesota reform bill where like there's rioting, there's protesting, it's ongoing, there's demands to defund the police in Minneapolis. But at the end of the day, like the state legislature basically did like the least amount that it could uh, and largely kind of took the appeasement track. But the, like, incentive for the police is to not, like, they kind of won. Like, nothing happened. They didn't get defunded. So, like, who cares? You just have to appeal to this, you know, 40% or 30% or 20% or whatever the, I think it's a minority position, at least in Minnesota, of kind of people that support the police. And if the police can cater to just that demographic, they don't have to give a shit about 
what the protesters are actually asking for. And I, I don't know what the mechanism kind of long term will be to enforce any defunding from a kind of a population electoralism standpoint. The, the Minneapolis elections are kind of odd. I think they happen on off-year election cycles. And I I cannot see how Fry gets reelected as mayor of Minneapolis by any stretch of the imagination. And, I mean, in Minneapolis, at least, I, I could see there being like a, I don't know how mechanically it would work, but there being a, a literal vote to defund the police and it passing in large numbers. I could see this happening in other, like Portland, maybe Chicago. Like, it could happen in large cities, um, but I think the battle is getting getting some mechanism of direct democracy, like, to the forefront so that people can actually act on it, as opposed to kind of dragging your feet and painting the street with Black Lives Matter to create some construct of, oh, really, your elected officials care deeply, care deeply about your cause to the degree that we're not going to do anything, but we are going to spend $80 and pay city workers to paint letters in the street. Yeah, it, it's kind of like the same idea of, of naming streets after MLK or now that John Lewis is dead, someone's going to go through and name a school after him. It's not a real change. It's just sort of appeasing a certain class of people who are vocal about it and, and not to take away from those things because they're super important to at least you know keep the names going generation to generation and, and ask questions as to why these people you know were really important. It, it But it doesn't actually do anything for real change. And the real the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we really want change, and how are we going to get there? And if you really want change, if you really are tired of somebody getting you know their head smashed in, you have to start questioning, what does the role of the police need to be? What's the role of the state in this sort of view? Is it, is it to enforce broken windows law and private property over the life of somebody else? Or is it to make sure there's a balance between the rights of the people and the balance of the rights of the private property and the, and the private property owner? Uh, so you see this uh, enforcement of private property protection, even in sort of the recent civil unrest, where uh, governors could justify deploying the National Guard to protect private property, but at the same time they couldn't justify deploying the National Guard to assist with medical relief related to COVID. And what we've seen right now, especially under capitalism, has been this sort of authoritarian fascist idea that the state exists to protect private capital and private property. It is this idea that we have to keep training basically paramilitary or, or militia-based forces in each city to protect private property and civil law against its citizens that has led to this um, intersection of violence. And a speeding ticket shouldn't result in someone's life being ended. A speeding ticket should end in a civil penalty, which is some valued, you know, taking out of your paycheck, I guess. It, it provides some incentive for adherence to whatever the ordinance or statute yeah. is. Yes. Yeah, but it should not ever be used as a vehicle or sorry, a mechanism to pull you over and then enforce warrants on you because that's what leads to violence. If you know the person has a warrant, then you can do other things like follow them home or call in backup and, and just wait them out because they can't not sleep for 48 hours, right? They can't not pee or poop, they can't eat, you just wait them out. They're going to eventually give up and come out with a warrant. So the idea that the police need to be violent to protect private property is, is what the real issue is here. It is because the state has given power to a select group of people to enforce civil law and then criminal law. And the prosecutor is also in this too. We cannot forget the prosecutor is the chief 
police officer in any area they're in because they get to choose how the laws are being enforced. They're going to focus on broken windows crime like they did in New York. Guess what you get? A lot of poor people getting picked up for things like breaking a window or loitering or shot because they're selling – or choked out because they're selling Lucy's or, or single cigarettes. And that's the biggest issue is, is why is the police state allowed to exist? And so, so the question, though, is that if you want change, and this is the important part for the listener here, is to start thinking about what you really think a model would be for not policing but for community activism or community service. So that someone's job is to not service or not actually do criminal or civil like arresting or, or law enforcement, but to actually help the community in large. And what does that look like? And does that change that you actually want to see? For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.